Welcome to episode 92 of the Design Details Podcast. I'm Brian Levin. I'm Bryn Jackson. And I'm Sarah Jackson. Sarah's co-hosting with us for the next couple episodes. We're, we're doing our favorite clips from 2015, things that meant a lot to us, so that we can take some time off, go visit family. Yep. We're taking a break, but if you do need more original podcast content, check out spec.fm, our network of podcasts for designers and developers helping you level up. Of course, we'll still be on Twitter, so hit us up at designdetailsfm or join our Slack team, spec.fm slash Slack. We've got tons of stuff going on there, rooms for each podcast. We have like full conversations uh, talking about what's new in design or helping people work through their stuff. It's fantastic. Before we get into some of our favorite clips from 2015, we want to thank our sponsors that made this show possible. First up, Dropbox. Dropbox is the easiest way, the simplest way to work the way that you want. So whether you're sketching, coding, prototyping, any kind of product, really, it doesn't have to just be a design process. They're with you the entire way through. It works with any kind of file, so you're free to choose the tools that you want for any kind of project. Uh, when you're ready for feedback, you can send large files to anyone fast. You can share really quickly, just send a link. Everything's uploaded in the background and people get a preview that saves them from having to download maybe a large file. And their commenting feature gives people a central place to post their thoughts. So you can get all your feedback, all your conversations right in line with the work itself. No extra emails, no extra anything. Dropbox gives you the freedom to work on anything from anywhere with anyone you choose. And you can check it out and get started at dropbox.com. Thank you once again to Dropbox. Our second sponsor, back again, Icon Finder, the world's largest source of high quality premium icons on the web. Uh, they have over 700,000 icons in their library. It's an incredible achievement just getting that many. It's kind of insane. Uh, people are downloading their icons 20,000 times per day, which is incredible. And if you're an icon designer, you should definitely start submitting your icons so you can get in on that. There are icon designers who are making four to $5,000 a month through selling their icons on Icon Finder. The icons on Icon Finder are incredible. You can find any style you want. Uh, but now, if you want something really specific to your brand, you can actually order customized icons tailor-made by these incredibly talented icon designers. Stock icons can sometimes not be enough to build a strong visual identity around. You can't necessarily like build your entire brand around stock icons. Now, you can order unique tailor-made icons almost as easily as buying a stock icon. You can even own the copyright if it's something that is specifically for you. Ordering icons through Icon Finder ensures that the collaborative process, which can be kind of rocky sometimes, especially with inexperienced designers or clients, uh, they make sure that the collaborative process between the customer and the designer follows professional standards, is more transparent, and ensures that the clients feel secure about working with these designers. The custom icon design process is divided into four major steps. The first being that the client uploads a design brief, uh, seeing the topic, specifications, number of icons, and other requirements for these icons or icon sets. Uh, second, these des the designers who are interested in the project based on that proposal submit their offers over the next 24 hours. So what that will cost, how long it'll take, things like that. Second, the designers who are interested in the project submit their offers over the next 24 hours. And third, after that 24 hours is up, the client selects the preferred designer who will work on the project based on their offer and examples of their previous work. So there's no spec work involved. It's just show your previous work, tell them what it'll cost them, get this thing done. And then finally, the designer delivers the work on or before the agreed upon deadline. So you can start ordering these custom icons at iconfinder.com slash custom icon design. You can check out the whole library at iconfinder.com. And as always, you can save 50% off your first month of Icon Finder Pro, which is their unlimited download service by using the code design details at checkout. Thank you once again to Icon Finder. With that, let's get into episode 92 with Sarah Jackson talking about our favorite clips of 2015. What? Our first clip for today's show comes from episode 61 with Josh Puckett. Such a fun episode. This guy is hilarious. Oh my God. We talked for hours. Like after the show, we just hung out and chatted. Uh, so much fun. But this particular clip I love because he talks about building side projects as a designer, uh, learning just enough code to be, as they say, dangerous and learning how to build the things you design. Uh, and he has this really great metaphor at the end, which I think you'll enjoy, and I'm not going to spoil now. It's about architects and cooks. Ah! <laughs> listen for it. Well, that was that's, a, that's the one you're referring to. That was, now people will know what it is. All right. Listen closely. I think this is really valuable to anyone who is building side projects. Hope you enjoy. So speaking of React Native, yeah, uh, there's two things I'm really curious about. And one of them is the fact that you build so many apps. I don't. I do. So many? <laughs> not so many. Sam more builds so many anyway. <laughs> more than the average designer and more than the average engineer builds. Sam Sofis. Nice shout out to our other host. Oh, is he a host? 
of a different show of a different podcast. Me. Oh, guess he's <laughs> also from the best state in the the world. Mm-hmm. So Kentucky, Louisville, Kentucky. What? Um, that's a city. I know, but <laughs> do you guys have any bourbon? By the way, are you guys just kidding? Louisville. Anyways, yeah. So React Native building apps. So you you do build a lot of stuff, and I'm curious. Yeah, um, maybe you are are actually building iOS apps. Is that right? Yeah. No, I've built a few. Yeah. yeah. So how did you uh, get into get into the that. building side instead of just yeah. The, Interesting question. I guess for me, I'm curious how it is for you, you all, but I sort of started like my first foray into computing uh, was sort of back in maybe the late nineties building websites, right? Where you sort of had to, if you wanted to make something visual, like a really, I remember a dumb website was like for cars and I was like, Oh cool. Like Ferraris are awesome. I want a website for, you know, pictures of Ferraris and like you could see the different cars. Uh, and to do that, you know, you had to figure out how to like make the web page, right? So I fumbled around in like front page or whatever it was. And, you know, my school randomly, I remember this, uh, I was in school in L- like sixth grade and my school had a book on HTML, which is like, why does this school have like totally random, right? But so I started learning that. And then, you know, I think the, the path is similar for a lot of us where you start making a website and then you want to add like, oh, a guest book or whatever it is, right? So you figure out a little bit of PHP and how to spin up like a LAMP server where you just, you know, pay like Media Temple or something to do it. So it sort of just grew up where there wasn't this divide for me of like designer where you only did like Photoshop and engineer where, you know, you're only like, we're doing code. It was sort of like, oh, I want to make this thing. And to do that, you need both of like these things. Um, I definitely say I'm like a maker and a builder, but I would make a pretty terrible engineer, I think. Okay. Like in terms of full stackness of engineering, but. So then how do you build your iPhone? Oh, well, I mean, I can build things, but do I build them like, well, uh, you know, in, in a terms scalable of like way? scalability. And yeah. Like I don't have the hardcore like gotcha. CS gotcha. algorithm stuff. Um, but I've tried to like commit in every app uh, that I've worked on or like every design, which I think is just helpful for a number of reasons. One, like on Carousel, like we were, E and I were able to, on both Android and iOS, just do a lot of the view la- layer stuff. And so like working on all the styles and making a style guide and code, like that's easy for us to do. And it frees up the engineers to work on like the much more difficult problems, like, you know, distributed systems, backups, and like the things that like I cannot do, right? And I think it just builds empathy, right? Like if you're willing to get into the code with your engineer, they're that much more likely to like implement this new gesture that you, you know, like designed or something. And I'm also just really curious about it, right? Like we, design is one of the few mediums, I think, where designers don't become as intimately studied or aware of the details, right? Like in architecture, you know materials really well, right? Like you work with those materials. If you study architecture, you, you learn about stone, about steel, about glass, about like the chemical makeup of all of them and how they are. That doesn't mean you're a structural engineer, right? Or a civil engineer, but you still have like a very good understanding of it. Similarly, a lot of, you know, if you're like managing a restaurant, you're probably very knowledgeable about wine and food. And you, you know, if you're a chef, you know a ton about wine, even if you're not a sommelier. And similarly, if you're a sommelier, you know a lot about food. But in design, it's this thing where we like, there seems to be this like holy wars of like, you know, oh, I'm just only going to focus on Photoshop and like sketch. And I have no interest in learning how things are actually made or built, which feels pretty terrible. Like, why would you, I don't know, like as a human with curiosity, why would you not be interested in like how those things are made? The other thing for a lot of the apps I've made, if you notice, they're actually like very simple. Uh, so they're not like super complicated things. Or I try to do things that don't require, for example, like a server, just because that adds a whole other layer of like dimension to it. So staying in like the client level is a lot easier for sure. That's awesome. Are you working on any new apps? Uh, good question. This next uh, clip comes from episode 45. You're the snail with El Luna. I'm kind of a cynic when it comes to inspiration and stuff, but El's episode and just chatting with her, like, holy shit. She she really, like, kind of changed my mind on some elements of it as, as to how things can lead to, like, just new thought processes. Using inspiration as a research kind of thing. I think we got more just generally positive energetic responses to Al's episode people coming away inspired like motivated it was pretty cool to see and this this clip specifically she talks about focus and how that leads to better work or taking your time with things and it being okay that you can like get older and your, your work will get better over time things like that which is not something you commonly hear in sf so here's el luna you're the snail 
There's a wonderful book by Robert Greene called Mastery, and he takes a radical approach to thinking about our work and talks about it at a life level in terms of a life length. And um, one of the challenges he makes about modern time is our need for things to be immediate and to be fast. And we want to be great right now at the age of 23 or 35. We'd like to be masters now, especially with our focus in advertising on youth culture and our celebration of that which is young and new. Um, we marginalize as a society uh, the elderly and anyone you know over the age of I guess in San Francisco, it's quite, we all want to be quite, Jared quite, oh, Jared. I love Jared. Um, yes, yes. There's this, um, sense of things past a certain age, uh, being less of less value. And it's a real problem because, uh, some of the greats throughout time really matured in their eighties or their seventies. And so one of the things I talked about in the book was that, you know, different times in people's lives when they stepped into their passion, like Julia Child didn't discover her love of French cooking until she was 41. And Laura Ingalls Wilder, the author of Little House on the Prairie, wrote that book, her first book at the age of 63. She's from a town very close to my hometown. I've wow. heard the story a lot of times. It's so good. It's, um, it's amazing. And just to think that you might have so many lives before you actually really step into the fullness of your passion at the age of 41 or 63. And, or maybe you feel like you haven't really found it at all and you're in your 50s. Well, you've got a ton of time left. One of the stories that, and this is really shifting my perception, I think the more I step out of the immediacy, immediacy of shipping with regards to um, the products that I've worked on in the past, the, the value of the snail. snail is totally it. So um, the poet, um, Rainer Maria Rilke, when he was a young poet, he's living in Germany, he uh, went to Paris to study with this sculptor, Auguste Rodin who at the time was still kind of not very well known. Did you see any of his works when you were in Paris? I encountered the museum. Mm. I did not go into it. it Rodin has um, incredible, incredible. If you saw some of his pieces, you would know what they are. He uh, invited this young poet into his studio. And on the dime, this young poet decided to live in Paris for three years and to study with this man who was about 20 or 30 years his elder. But he felt like he had figured it out, his process, his practice, and what his work was about in his life. And so for three years, uh, Rilke and Rodin had all these amazing discussions. Uh, Rilke began writing about Rodin and his kind of thoughts about the world and art and what it all meant. And Rodin then created um, the most incredible honor for this young poet by making him the sole critic and uh, thinker about his work. And so uh, Rilke wrote a book called Auguste Rodin, and, I've, and I'm working my way through it right now. And one of the things that I find so amazing is that when Rodin first was getting started, he created a sculpture and he submitted it to a competition in Paris and it was rejected. He kept working in his studio. He submitted it again. He was rejected a second time. And after that, he decided that he needed to go into his studio and figure out from an incremental, iterative standpoint, his work, what was going on and what the necessity was for him as a maker for 13 years. Rodin worked in total solitude for 13 years. That was his, that was his unit of time was 13 years. And the next piece that he exhibited at the end of that 13 year period became one of his masterpieces. And after that point, every single piece after that drew upon the lessons and insights that he had found within himself during that 13 year period. So what does that mean for us as makers? Well, what would it do to your practice if you thought about a 10 year chunk of your time? Um, for the next 10 years, I'm going to focus on one thing. I'm not going to go and do other things. I'm going to commit myself to knowing this one thing. I just, I was in Berlin recently and I met this amazing artist, a sculptor working there. And um, we were having a studio visit and she said to me, if you know one thing well, you know the entire world. And for me in my practice, I've been doing a lot of bouncing around from products and painting and writing. And I've, I've, that's the way my, my mind works to a degree, but also there's a bit of antsiness in that. What would it look like if I were to just sit down for 10 years and work on one thing? It's, it's, it's actually kind of exciting. It sounds really lovely uh, to sit down and say, I'm going, to, I'm going to stare at this piece of marble until I know how to chisel into it. That's what Rodin did. He sat and looked at one piece of marble for unbelievable amounts of time. And every night for hours, when he'd get home from his job, he would just stare at the marble until the marble had revealed to him what was inside of it. And then he was like, okay, now I see. And then he, it wasn't about creating the sculpture. It was about revealing what was already there. Whoa. So mm -hmm. as I think about work and time, 
um, imagine like what your work is going to be in your 20s versus your 30s versus your 60s, your 80s. Um, having that kind of viewpoint on what we're doing, I mean, we can build worlds. And so I guess it's incremental. The real delicious thing is just the time and the patience. And I would also toss in the solitude, which we're lacking because we're all very busy. What you're doing at the Blonde Project seems like it takes a lot of time. I saw the, the first one, the scarf. This is the one that I think most people know about, or most, most of our audience would know about. What, what have you been doing there since? Because we're on now the third edition. So um, Bulan Project, I guess somewhere along the way, I fell in love with the moon. I think the moon is this incredibly enigmatic thing in my life. And so I decided I wanted to make more of a livable piece of art about it. And so I replicated the moon phases for that year on this textile. I worked with these women in Bali who hand paint every single piece uh, with wax and then it's all indigo dyed. It's incredible. And it was, I guess it was iterative me experimenting. It kind of came out of nowhere and I saw what they could do and I, it, it came out of play really. I was there for about six weeks and they began just for fun turning some of my paintings that I was doing because I was painting in an Airbnb. Somebody came by and said, can I have some of your paintings? And he disappeared and he came back right as I was leaving on a flight and handed me these exquisite textiles where he had, they had turned my paintings into textiles. It was incredible. So I knew I had to go back to Bali. That was the hook. I had to go back and see if there was something there. And I made about a hundred of these textiles. And then um, I got to work with uh, Josh and Jared. Josh Rotino yes, and Jared Rondu. Yes, who are wizards on making the most gorgeous site uh, for these textiles. And then um, the photographer, Michael O'Neill, uh, got to work with basically a bunch of my heroes and bring these things to life. And the digital experience was just as much of an endeavor as the physical product. Um, and then all the packaging, I don't know, it was just fun. I got to spend like all the money I wanted on packaging as a designer. I kept thinking like, I would like to hand stitch, you know, these like unique designs into every single package. And it was like, okay, that's what we're going to spend money on because <laughs> I, I control the budget. So that's cool. Um, so the, it's just a labor of love. And, um, the first one was the moons. The second one was these triangles. And, uh, the third one was based on the I Ching, which is the book of changes. Uh, they're all kind of mystical and poetic and we make really cool websites that I hope people go to and they feel more like they're in an art project than, um, maybe your typical user flow for a checkout process. There's a, there's <laughs> e a gate to get in right now <laughs> and it's the most unique gate I've ever seen. It's, um, I, I don't want to spoil it. We'll, we'll let people go check it out, but yes, it's so unique and personal. And I might say that you should probably check it out soon because it might not be there forever. Link in the show notes. <laughs> Gotta plug the show notes. Gotta plug the show notes. <laughs> so one question I have, I feel like it's maybe more of a sensitive subject, but people come to me with this issue a lot is they have something they want to be doing, but one of their biggest constraints is money. Mm. And I think about spending, you know, a month in, in Bali and certainly I don't know your situation, all this, but like, I think of spending a month in Bali and then, um, going from like a very secure job where you're making money of a paycheck to sort of this broader unknown. Do you have any advice for maybe dealing with that particular fear of, I don't have money to survive if I leave my current thing? Like, what do I do? So in the show notes, there's going to be a link to a Ted talk. Uh, by Stefan Sagmeister. And in it, he talks about three different modes of work. I watched this TED talk and it totally blew me away. Uh, he talks about jobs, careers, and callings and how they're different. A job, he says, is something that we do from nine to five for pay. A career is like a system of advancements over time. And then a calling is something that we do for intrinsic motivation, something regardless of pay. And in this TED talk, he asks you to identify which ones you have in your life. And this really blew me away. This I watched this when I was at Mailbox. And with all of your projects and your, your work, both paid and unpaid, how would things map across those three categories of job, career, and calling? And once you do that exercise, it puts things in perspective about why you're doing what and where your motivations are for the different types of work that you have. This next segment is two clips from Saleo's episode. So good, we had to do two. Yeah, this was episode 67 with Saleo Cuervo. The clips are, are a little bit different, but what I really love about this is how he talks about helping designers get their first job. And he talks about Facebook being built on new grads. Facebook was built on new grads. He talks about overestimating people instead of underestimating. 
it's inspiring. Saleo thinks about this a lot in all the companies he advises, and he is an authority on this. And uh, I think it's as he's a trust authority. He's a thought leader of sorts. Oh God! <laughs> Can I say that on this podcast? No, leave. Mm, get out of here. <laughs> uh, but yeah, we hope you enjoy these uh, two clips from Sleo Cuervo, episode sixty-seven. No, we, so uh, <laughs> Facebook's a juggernaut. So Facebook's a juggernaut. And I think most people just kind of take that for granted. It's sort of like, you know, it's like the Parthenon, like it's just a thing that exists in the world. Um, but for me, like the, the key thing that I took away is that there are many more great companies embedded They're They're out there. They're just, they haven't been created yet. And what I wanted to do with my career was help create, help essentially add players to that table. Um, one, because I don't think it's a zero sum game where you can only have four great companies. I think you can have like 12, right? Startup gardening. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and so, and a lot of the things that we learned the hard way at both Facebook and Dropbox in terms of, you know, product market fit in terms of like building the right team in terms of growth. Um, these things are also applicable to a lot of these really sage teams. And so that's, um, something I want to focus a lot of my energy on is if I was a hiring manager, for this industry. One, you know, there are a few limiting factors for tech. Design talent is one of them. It's really hard to recruit for folks. And yet there's a lot of people who want to work in this sphere. So how do we create systemic pathways so that people who want to do this line of work can very deterministically do X, Y, Z, and you get that job, right? Like, why is it there's so much friction in the system there? People are always looking for a specific set of rules to to hit, like thresholds. Yes. It's something that's asked me all the time, like, how do I get a job? Like, what, what are the steps I just need to take to do yeah. it? And so, like, maybe I just need to write a blog post, like, just do X, Y, Z. Just demonstrate that you can do is, these things. Do you think that's a thing? Maybe. I don't know. I, I think it's one of those things where I think it's a combination of, like, folks not willing to take risks on mm-hmm. unproven talent. There's that. Uh, but then, two, it's it's just when you are a growth stage company, when you are a startup, you live and die by your talent. Yeah. And so it's, like, really hard for folks to take gambles on on people. Whereas... Facebook was built on the backs of a bunch of new grads. <laughs> like everybody we hired was either like a college dropout or um, people that were fresh out of school. Like think about Julie Zhu, think about Bobby Goodlatte, uh, think about uh, Joey Flynn, uh, Drew Hamlin. All of these folks came to Facebook as their first job. And in my mind, I think that more employers need to be taking active risks in developing and, and nurturing early talents, giving people their first jobs. I love giving people their first jobs. I got a list of those folks. Because it's fun to give people the opportunity to create that inflection point in their own lives, but more importantly, in the lives of hundreds of millions of, uh, of users that you can potentially serve. So how many of those people that you gave their first jobs didn't work out? Because uh, that's the other side, right? That also happens. <laughs> um, that's tough. I mean, I guess my general philosophy is I'd rather make the mistake of overestimating a person than ever making the mistake of underestimating someone. I would rather suffer overestimation to the day I die. Cause I just, I, I don't feel as much regret as I do underestimating somebody. So, okay. Um, and I think that's how you challenge people to, to, to prove themselves is by mm-hmm. like just dumping a ton of responsibility on them or giving them the opportunity to prove themselves, even if it's a reach goal. Um, and then being there when they fall short. Right. Yeah. I think, I think for me, like a lot of the focus right now is like, how do I build more companies like Facebook that are good, safe, happy homes to the next generation of designers? Cause I know myself well enough to say that I am not one of the great designers of our age. Certainly not. I was just luckier than most people. Yeah. And you're so like, it's like mediocre at best. You're like a B plus. I'm like, I'm like, I'm like 80, <laughs> 80, <plus>. 82. <laughs> So like a solid B player. You if, you're pass, like, but... if, if you're looking for B players, I'm your guy. Hire Saleo. <laughs> oh, um, but I do like the idea of like, well, how do we start to make luck and opportunity more accessible to folks? How do we just do a better job of signaling to people outside of industry? These are the things that hiring managers want to see. These are the resources that are freely available for you to develop your craft. And this is what the work actually looks like in practice. I mean, you're going to do a bunch of things as an individual in front of a computer. But as it turns out, design is not just staring at a computer, moving things around or typing code. It's like spending a lot of time talking to folks, being collaborative, being somebody who can move ideas around. And in that model, I think we can draw a lot of inspiration from existing industries that stumbled into the exact same pain points. Everything from like the TV industry with its writer's room 
uh, all the way through to like the military and how it like generates knowledge and disseminates knowledge as efficiently as possible across like large organizations, um, how the military recruits. Right. And um, I think oftentimes technology folks tend to believe that we're stumbling into a problem for the first time when in fact it turns out there's a lot of <laughs> prior examples <laughs> that we can draw inspiration from. How do you get someone their first job? What do you teach them? How do you advise them? What do you look for? Uh, so things that I look for very actively is one, like side projects and not just side projects in terms of, um, you know, I just, I made a thing cause I need to show you that I made a thing. Like side projects that demonstrate a real passion for the work. Like you have to suffer through, like my version of this was like suffering through IE6 bugs. I like became a domain expert on like IE6 CSS hacks, <laughs> which is really sad. Like when was that like, asterisks or underscores? <laughs> some really exotic, like, <laughs> and we kind of needed to write the playbook there because 80% of our user base was on IE6. And we're like, we gotta, we gotta make this happen. And what I love about that is that, you know, if, you know, finding folks who are willing to suffer through the monotony, the pain of their craft, at least in my mind, demonstrates like they've got the, the discipline and the passion to, to be excellent. I think Ira Glass described taste as like just that like dissatisfaction, that like willingness to just apply more energy and force. And I was very lucky enough to um, have a private instructor uh, as a young violinist who just had me, my first two years with this guy was just playing scales. We played no music and I hated it. It drove me nuts, but he was really good at identifying when I was not practicing my scales. But more importantly, it was like training this like engine in my head that made me realize, oh, actually he can hear when I'm not playing in tune and now I can hear it. And frankly, I don't sound like those guys on the radio. And now I know what that sounds like in the delta between me and them. And I want to bridge that. I'm going to play scales until I sound more like that player. Mm -hmm. And I didn't realize it, but like sometimes you have to throw time to really smooth out those edges and develop the taste to know when you are out of tune. Cause that's essential to playing difficult pieces. You have to kind of like be able to think one level above of where your current skill set is. And that just requires time. So the side projects that I look for are, are ones that are exemplary of things that are just like monotonous or hard that require somebody to really spend a lot of time and energy to, to, to solving. Other things that I look for are like trajectory. Like how quickly does the person become proficient at something? Like asking them like, okay, you're clearly good at this. When did you first start? Because trajectory is something that, again, can be extrapolated forward. And I think that, you know, it's easy to teach a person a bunch of things, especially if they're really good learners. Are they self-motivated enough to kind of pick up new skills very quickly? And that in and of itself is like a meta skill. Like learning new things is a meta skill that I, I know myself, I, I, I thought would just no longer be applicable once you left school, but it turns out it's just applicable to the day you die. And uh, this is continuously true of like the very best designers, like the difference between a B player and an A player in my mind are the folks that are just like better at teaching themselves new skills and forcing themselves to grow in new areas that are, were previously underdeveloped. The last thing that I look for is just a collaborative event. Somebody who's willing to uh, take critical feedback and take it well. Somebody who is really adept at just incorporating good ideas from others. Somebody who's able to just be a, like a solid team player, not just like a Don Draper type character that sits in a room and comes back with a brilliant idea. Um, the thing that I often look for is just folks that can combine a, a healthy sense of imagination with being able to like suss out the best from other people. Because when a person is resourceful in the manner that I described, you can throw more people into their sphere and they just get better work out of those people. Um, they just create like nonlinear value. Um, and then everything else is teachable. Teaching a person how to use framers, not hard, right? just takes time. But those are the kind of qualities that I look for. So when you, when you move past that first stage of getting someone their job, you move more into like a mentorship role? Um, it kind of depends on the individual, but um, yeah, part of it's just kind of getting them acclimated with tech like if they're showing up to their first rodeo part of it's just like making sure that on the ground they understand like hey here's what engineers do here's what product managers do the kind of things that we take for granted making sure that they've got a pretty good oh shit what of, do product managers do what do product managers do? <laughs> i actually think there are two types of designers in tech there are people who have worked with great product managers and people who haven't and uh, <laughs> and i'm lucky enough to be in the yeah. former camp um product managers are amazing <laughs> Um, yeah, great product managers are amazing. 
I think it's mostly making sure that people understand like what is expected of them and getting a sense of the lay of the land, like who, where they should be routing their work to, who should they be talking to, to make their work uh, more successful and um, making sure that they're not blowing themselves up either. I think it's really easy for a person who has tremendous amount of energy and the, the gumption to go and prove themselves in a rookie year to make a lot of rookie mistakes and just like spread themselves. Thin but go really hard themselves. on them too. Like they'll, they'll double down on rookie mistakes. <laughs> yeah. It's like, I, I think, you know, I, I love that, you know, I'm holding in my hand this book that says focus on impact, which I guess is part of Facebook's onboarding kit. Um, I mean, like what does focus on impact mean? Like, how do you explain that to a new grad that they understand? You hand them a notebook with it on it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> like for me, like the, the way I like to think about focus on impact is, you know, thinking back on summer of 98 world cup. And this guy named Ronaldo from the Brazilian soccer team, uh, reaches the world stage. And he's a very unconventional soccer player. He's like this guy who doesn't run for most of the game. He's just sort of walking around on the field and you're like, what is he doing? Like how, how do his teammates not hate the guy? And he just focuses on scoring goals. He just focuses on uh, applying himself to the instances in a sport where there's the most impact concentrated. And that's like, producing goals. And so the few times that you see Ronaldo run, he's running faster than anyone on the field and he is converting situations into goals. And you're like, how did that come out of thin air? Um, that was always my favorite uh, rubric for impact. Like goal scoring in soccer is pretty high impact. Like the games swing around just one specific dimension and you need all the other stuff to make that possible. But when it really, really counts, that's the thing that, that, that soccer games well down to. Uh, and so how do you expose the equivalent to a new grad in, in an environment? Like, how do you make sure that they're not spending 80 hours working on low impact work? They're instead focused on the things that truly matter. What are you most excited about? What do you see that like just gets you pumped about design happening today? Two things. Your boys. One. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, actually, actually. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, th Art. that's that's part two. I think I think part one is just the sheer reach. It's very rare, in general, for a person to just like make decisions and act on the universe in such a way that you affect that many people. Um, this is not true at early Facebook. Like a hundred million people is very different from say like three billion folks, right? And guess what? Three billion is going to be the number in like two years for a lot of these big major services. That's extraordinary. You can't even invent a religion that reaches that many people. <laughs> like that's, that's, it's just like, it, it's like mind warping. So, so the, the reach piece is what's really exciting to me and why I'm just so passionate about getting more people to recognize tech as a, as a place to be a creative tech, as a place to be a very fruitful and well compensated and happy designer getting to work with really amazing folks um, on, on things that are fundamentally hard to do. I think the second piece is, you know, while we were fixing IE6 bugs uh, at early Facebook, we often talked about like, you know, what the second or third decade of Facebook would look like. And one of the, the con you know, concepts were around like virtual commons, the knowledge economy, universal currency, like all these like just zany, heady ideas. But like the, the, one of the premises that I keep circling back to is, you know, there's, there's so much knowledge that's trapped in people's heads. And um, what I'm most excited about is that people are working on products that allow folks across the world to transition away from manual labor to using their minds, right? Using their creativity Bionics. to create. <laughs> 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 using their minds to move buildings around. Um, no, in all seriousness, like, like moving, like yeah. just not being mules, but doing like work with their minds. And I think that software is, is the, the essential tool uh, along across the efforts of numerous companies. And so um, that's an important one-time transition. Like now that Facebook's talking about this idea of a knowledge economy, it's like, okay, well, let's imagine that this is true. Like what are the services that don't exist today that are gonna enable people to rise outside of poverty, right? Where all of a sudden like that smartphone or that tablet that shows up in a really remote location, like creates extraordinary value for these folks. That, I think it's just a very powerful mission and I think it's a very powerful opportunity. Yeah, those are the two things that get me excited. Because if you assume that talent and creativity is evenly distributed across the human species, there's a lot of latent talent and creativity 
that we can unlock. And that's a pretty bright future for our children and for ourselves as old curmudgeon 90 year olds <laughs> enjoying the benefits. B of- players on Ask <laughs> <Man>. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> This next clip comes from Drew Wilson, episode 77, Pegacorns. I was really proud of that title. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) um, Oh, yeah. Sarah names the episodes. But the interesting thing about this, and guys, I want your take on this, but do do either of you come from a tech background? Are your your families in tech? I mean, I think you know the answer to this. I know your answer. My answer is no. My family is not in tech. Yeah. They're all secret agents. Yeah, secret agents. Secret agent secret loving. Secret agent loving. <laughs> it sounds like a terrible movie. And it sounds like you're making it up, but it's really true. <laughs> My parents were secret agents. Yeah. For the U.S. government. Yeah, it's kind of cool. They infiltrated dark networks of the underground world. Yeah, so Bryn, Bryn's parents, my parents, like we're not we're not in tech, and I think that's what's really uh, cool about this clip from Drew is he's from a very similar background and like you just went for it. Yeah, just going for it, just being like, here I am, finding your own resources and making it happen for yourself. Yeah, it's super awesome. cool. The other thing that stood out to me about this clip was uh, we get really caught up in the whole SF bubble the bay area and we know so many people listen to the show from outside and he Mm. comes from outside the bay area so i think his perspective on like yeah his perspective on coming from there to here and like seeing the differences he's not even here he's in sausalito that's not even real (laughs) (laughs) that's not a real place he's like come eat sushi in sausalito (laughs) (laughs) but yeah i thought that was cool yeah it's a good clip i think everybody will enjoy it so you're self-taught design development like what are your resources who are the people that you're you're learning from and look up to or have learned from or have in the past but this sounds like a silly question but you feel uh, you just seem outside of this whole san francisco circle i just like want to know more about you seem avoidant stop holding us away (laughs) from you like i just want to know more about like how you think and like became a better designer over time yeah so originally like my design influences were late nineties, early two thousands stuff. So, um, I mean, I'll throw out a bunch of references, but if you were designing at the time, you may not recognize it. So like design is kinky surf station, Australian in front. There's like a bunch of these guys, three Oh three or not three Oh three, three. Gosh, a stupid band now messes me up every time. <laughs> I'm good. Stupid band is an accurate name. <laughs> <laughs> Are you uh, starstruck? No. Anyways, there's like a bunch of these, cool design communities. And I want to, I use the word community very loosely because there wasn't really a community, but it, back then before blogging, some designers had the chops to make a little news feed and be able to update it. Most people didn't. And that's how you would read about the industry. Literally anyone who had a website, they're like, whoa, it's them. Whoa. You're like, they're the big people, right? Just like today, if you write blog posts a lot, suddenly you're the person, right? So a lot of my influence comes from that time. And when it comes to like startup stuff and like business, honestly, I don't have any because nobody in my family was like in tech whatsoever. And when I was starting out doing tech, I was in Southern California and I didn't know anybody else in tech. Uh, one of my buddies was a developer and he worked on some stuff with me. And then my, my, my current CTO for Plasso, um, I used to fly him in to help me with stuff a long time ago when I was building FireRift. Um, but see, I had to like go way out. I, had to, he, I flew him in from Portland because I didn't know anybody around the area. Um, I one time tried Craigslist, but that did not work out. Uh, <laughs> you never Craigslist. grow Craigslist. <laughs> so, uh, did you miss connections? I mean, that was a good okay, way to get go. this, get this. My, my idea of success was the word big corporations or the words big corporations. Like if I'm successful, that means I'm doing design for big corporations in quotes, right? As a small business person, that's, you think they're just like this entity, right? And I used, do you know what BNI is? Business Network International? Okay. So it's, Ugh. you do know what it is? No, but it sounds terrible. Oh yeah. So it's, it's a group of people that meet up at a restaurant in the morning to exchange referrals. It's a referral group. So it's like realtors, contractors, uh, loan people and me <laughs> all just get around a table, eat breakfast and exchange referrals. And then every time you meet once a week, you stand up and you give your pitch, stand up, give your pitch about your company. And the idea is that hopefully one of these people will at some point 
in their day know someone who could use your services and give you a referral. I never once got a referral. I was the, I was the secretary treasurer. I did it for a while, but I was like, okay, obviously this isn't working. I had the largest ad in the yellow pages, right? For design, it was color. Never got a single call until my last week before my year was up. Someone's like, hey, um, are you hiring? <laughs> I'm like, gosh, dang it. And so the yellow pages didn't work out. I remember the yellow page salesman coming to my house wanting me to renew. I was like, I'm not gonna renew, nothing happened. And he kind of was like upset about the fact that I was like, like anything I got from here is not going to be very big. He's like, well, what do you think? You're so good that you're going to be able to do the website for the chamber of commerce or something. <laughs> like to him, that's like the, that's like, man, that's it, man. Chamber of you commerce. Designed, web- you designed the chamber of commerce <laughs> website. <laughs> so I realized at that time, I'm like, man, something is this, there's gotta be something more to this design stuff. Right. And I didn't know anything about the Valley, Silicon Valley. I knew Apple was in San Francisco and all that kind of stuff, but I didn't know anything about like startups. It's all, Whatever. <laughs> but I was actually born in the Bay Area. I was born in Fremont. But when I was three, we moved up to the Pacific Northwest. Um, but other than that, I didn't really know what was going on here. And then when I started making my first CMS, had nothing to do with the internet world whatsoever. It had to do with, I had clients that wanted you know to update their site. And I'm always the kind of guy that would rather build stuff myself than use something. Which is dumb. But that's like we all <laughs> fall into. So I, I can just build this thing. Yeah. It's whatever. So I WordPress, I, fuck that. And I decided to sell it. And so that was my first product animated commercial for it and yeah. all that kind of jazz. Yeah. I was fired. And then I made Quixly, which is digital delivery stuff. What does digital delivery mean? So it means like you can sell digital goods like icons, music files, anything that's not physical. And so um, digital delivery means that when someone pays, the system will email them a secure link that's only good for them. And then it expires after they use it, that kind of thing. So it's a secure way to send files to people to sell digital goods. Um, so yeah, I was totally outside of it and not till like around Quixly fire of time. Um, because at that point I was more involved in the community, like with JavaScript and, and stuff and learning things through there. And of course, when Twitter came out, basically Twitter kind of introduced me to the whole Valley stuff. Like I'm sure a lot of people... And so I've always, always been an outsider. And so my influences have never come from anyone in the Valley. I, I would say my biggest influence uh, is something I don't want to become. And that is Steve Jobs. I don't want to be anything like him. And in then, what ways? Uh, in every way, pretty much. <laughs> A few years ago, I started following Richard Branson because I just, you know, catching glimpses of that guy. And I, he's somebody I think is super cool that I'd like to replicate. What, um, what's, like what specifically? Um, so Steve Jobs is a micromanager. Richard Branson is a, I don't know what the term is. Hands off crazy person. Hands off manager, right? So he, his whole philosophy is find people that are super smart and super passionate about the specific thing you're hiring for and let them go. It's more of like a, a people over product. I have a blog post about this a while ago. So putting people over the product, right? So a lot of like, from what I hear, a lot of startups don't really value people and their time. And, um, they kind of abuse that all for some product that probably is going to go nowhere. And I feel like that's Steve Jobs to a T, at least from what you hear about and what you read about in his book and all that kind of stuff. And then there's the opposite where it's like people are more valuable than the product. And I prefer that approach. So I'd rather do that. I don't know where I was going. That's, something, that. I, yeah. that's something I think about a lot because the most valuable thing for me since I've gotten here has not been the products I worked on. It's been the people I've met. Mm-hmm. Like that, that seems like it would carry through. Like you can build a bunch of products with a good group of people. Mm-hmm. You can try and try and fail and fail. And uh, I mean, I'd, ideally eventually you win, but mm-hmm. man, if, if you don't have the right group of people and they don't want to continue working with you, you're, what's the point? Totally. And if you burn bridges just for some stupid, like game app or whatever, but, um, that's the other thing too. You come to the Valley and people get brainwashed. You know, I was talking to someone who I thought was still not brainwashed because they're not from brainwashed you know, meaning they're obsessed with user traction, VC language, all that kind of stuff. And good at raising funds. Yeah. And they lose sight of, in my opinion, they lose sight of what they're in it for and they their site is a hundred percent on fame and monetary gain, I guess. And if you start out, that's your whole goal, fine or whatever. But so anyways, I was talking to this guy who's not from here uh, and then he came here 
And so I was talking to him about, you know, something. Plus, I just wanted to talk about San Francisco in general. And I was like, yeah, I want to ask you because, you know, you're normal. He's like, what do you mean I'm normal? I'm like, well, you're not from San Francisco. You have like a, a, purpose, a perspective outside of it. He's like, oh, okay. And, um, and then <laughs> as, I, realized. And as okay. I started talking to him and the things he was saying back to me, I'm like, oh my gosh, this guy is totally brainwashed, cloned into, he's assimilated into the Borg. You know what I mean? And it, it's definitely not true, but there is a vibe that everyone kind of thinks the same in, in San Francisco along the same lines of like, here's the path. You must come up with a disruptive idea. You must then court VCs. You must then raise a certain amount of money. If you don't raise a certain amount of money, don't do that idea. It's kind of backwards. Uh, and then you must <laughs> blow all your money trying to get your MVP out the door <laughs> and then raise more money and own nothing. And, and all along the way, you must make all these people work for, you know, I'm not going to say low pay because people in other parts of the world would die to make that much money. But um, it's compared to the living yeah. cost. It's a different thing. Yeah. To be clear. But yeah, yeah you're not It wrong. is kind of crazy how you're much you're not wrong. Yeah. How much you don't make here um, if you're working at a startup because you're paying so much just in freaking Uber and Lyft fees. Gosh, dang it, <laughs> Son of oh. you just rode your first Lyft. Yeah. Today I've, I've actually ridden three. Um, that's a, that's a lot of Sausalito already. money. And I'll be, and, well, I get 10 free lifts because I just signed <laughs> up and then I'll ride one back to Sausalito, but that's a good use of a free lift. <laughs> yeah. You should save them all for free rides to Sausalito. <laughs> it's only free after $10. So uh, okay. $10 it's a on. discount. Yeah. <laughs> take them all at the airport, take them to Sausalito. <laughs> just go up to Napa. It's fine. So how, how this is so dumb because it's you, but how do you, how are you going to stay above all this? Like nonsense. You're here for yeah. six months. Are you nervous? Hey, about, let's not like, say above. Let's say outside. Yeah, yeah I don't want to say. Yeah. A, I don't want to say above, um, because you know some people it works for them. They come into this, you know, this um, system, and, and they they're able to work it and all that kind of stuff. But I'll stay outside of it just for the fact that this isn't my first rodeo. This is my first time. Building. It sounds like it's not your first rodeo. <laughs> rodeo. <laughs> this is my first time building something or starting a company or anything like that. And so because I've done it multiple times before, I do want to do it differently this time. Um, however, I've been in the industry for a while and I don't think this one trip will change me. But I will. Hey, Drew Wilson has always been a proponent of bootstrapping. And I still will be. Right. Will I you always, always be a proponent of referring to yourself in the third person. No, but I was sorry. <laughs> What about? But Drew Wilson <laughs> is about to change people. Drew Wilson, he is gonna raise some money. You sound like a like a charismatic preacher. Yeah, that's what I'm going for, guys. So I am gonna be doing th things differently because I've done things one way so long. I'm I'm all about change in my personal life and in my professional life and learning new things and doing new things. So I view it as I have a very small lifespan and I want to do as many things as possible and experience as many things as possible. So it's time to to do something different. And try to, you know, take advantage of the industry I'm in and take advantage of what's there. This next clip comes from Mr. Bob Ross Petty himself. Dan Bob Ross Petty. Dan, <laughs> Dan Bob Ross Petty, number 78. Um, and he talks to us about working for free. Have either of you two worked for free? Yeah, uh, yeah. I, I don't miss it personally, but it, it's a great way to get the work you want, and that's really where he was coming from with it. So this whole episode was like amazing. I love talking to Dan. He's so energetic and cares so much, and this episode showed it, and especially this clip because it's something he feels very strongly about. He's written a lot about working for free. We, we've talked about it a lot inside our Slack team, Slack. Yeah, I, I was so stoked that he he talked about this for I don't know, like ten minutes or something. Um, I've worked for free before. Yeah, you did. It's helped. Yeah. Did it get you the work you wanted? Um, kind of, kind of, sorta. Yeah. What's the work you wanted? Producing uh, for a badass podcast yeah. network. Doing this. Obviously, <laughs> writing the spec. Heyo. Mm. <laughs> Let's get into the clip with Dan Petty. So, among all of these conferences, the one thing that blows my mind is. You're not making money on this, you personally. Let's talk a little about working for how, free. How, how can this be your like day job? Because this is what you're working on right now. Yes, I am full-time up occurrence that makes 
No money. Uh, no, like I, I'm here where I am today because I work for free a lot. I'm going to get a lot of hate for saying this. I, yeah, I, I love to work for free. I mean, I think working for money, first of all, money isn't everything. I think rate relationships are more powerful than, uh, than money any day. I'd partially agree with that. Partially. Hey. Dude, I'll take that. The, the relationships I've made out here have been far more meaningful than my paychecks have been. There you go. That's what I'm talking about. Thanks, buddy. I assume you're referring to me. Specifically <laughs> not you. Shoot. Um, I don't know. So I got started. I went to design school. You work for free in design school. You actually pay to work. You do a lot of work in design school. What, what um, schools did you go to? I went to O'Moore College of Design in Franklin, Tennessee. It's a small private design school. Um, they only allow 100 students a year, or at least did at the time. And I had the same five people in all my classes every semester. So it was like this nice like little challenge the entire time. It was, it was sweet. All of our teachers were like real world designers. Like one of my teachers was creative director at MTV. Um, she would Skype That's in awesome. or fly in or whatever. Um, and it was super cool. She got me a lot of work later on, but, um, yeah, I, you know, you, you do a lot of work for free in school. I worked in advertising for a while when I first got started, lots of free pitch work. It was just ingrained in my mind that that's how you work. And so when I got started, I would reach out to my favorite companies and be like, Hey, I don't like your website or I really like it, but would you like to see something else? No charge. I just want to show you some cool stuff. And if you hit the, hit the right person and like, yeah, sure. Why not? I mean, who doesn't like free ideas? But, um, I would just get legal. started that way. Legal doesn't like free ideas. Legal doesn't. <laughs> and, it, and by the way, if you're doing an interview and they ask you to do free work, that is not good. That's a different thing. That's a whole different thing. I'm yep. not talking about that kind of free work. If people ask you to redesign your product, that's a problem. Yes. Redesign your product, sorry. And also, you should have a job and be making money somehow. I'm not saying make zero dollars into your free work. I was working at American Eagle in the, in the mall. I was a sales guy and doing free work. But you know what? People see that work and then you get to do Nixon.com for, you know, I mean, I should not have done Nixon.com. And this was, this was well into my career already. So Nixon.com was about to launch and they did not like what they were about to launch, but they were going to launch it. I mean, you had to, you pay all this money, put it all in time. The site wasn't terrible. Um, and they were going to put it out. And I caught wind of that. And I was like, look, I'm the biggest Nixon fan of all time. And I was like, Hey, <laughs> you can't do this. Like, let me do the week, go over the weekend, send you a comp, just see what you think. Send it to to Anthony over there. He loved it. Pitched it to uh, Chad, the CEO at the time, and they loved it. And then, like two weeks later, I ended up doing the complete redesign of something that I'd been working on for quite—I mean, a really long time. And I was like, "You guys don't even have to pay me anything. Just this is awesome. Like this is going to be good for me. You know, good for you, good for me. Like just do this. Getting relationships. I love Nixon. Like." I don't, throw me some watches. I don't care. I don't need, <laughs> I don't need money for this. I already have other, you know, ways of making money. This is just fun for me. I was having fun, you know, ended up. Yeah, sure. I got 25 something Nixon watches <laughs> and uh, a signboard by Rob Machado, fresh out of the water. Uh, but so many, so many resources and referrals came from that. Like it is ridiculous. I probably made another, I don't want to talk about money. <laughs> I made a lot of money for that just for working for free for two weeks uh, of my time. And I don't know, it's, there's a lot, I have a lot of stories like that. I did, I did, some, um, one of my teachers, um, the creative director, uh, for MTV, she was, uh, then became the creative director at National Geographic. I did her, uh, boyfriend at the time's website. He was a pro golfer. Did his quick little website, built it in flash and everything. Just took a couple weeks of my time. I don't know, free time. And years later, I do tons of work for National Geographic because of that. Like we got in good with that relationship. Yeah, sure. It took years later, but man, that was like a year's salary for me when I was doing that Net Geo work. That's all I did my first year of freelancing was I did one Google project and then a, uh, like this quick little, it was like two months of National Geographic and then I surfed the rest of the year and then met my wife. Ooh. I just took time off. Like it was so good. 
offer working for free just a couple of times, like each is their own, but I, I highly recommend, um, if you got the time, like do some cool stuff that you're passionate about. Don't, I'm not saying go redesign everything, put it up on dribble, up one shot up on dribble. That's not what we're talking about here. I'm talking about doing some real work that you don't really have to show off. Like I didn't show this stuff off to, to anyone until the Nixon site was live. Like I didn't care. I just wanted to do it because I was passionate about it. And, uh, you grow from that too. It's like a practice too. It's like when you play basketball, when you're a pro basketball player, you're going to practice, you know, or when you're trying to become pro, you're probably going to practice. You might not get paid to practice, but it's the same thing in a way. Why do you think people are so opposed to that? And the general opinion being like, you have a skill, you shouldn't give that away for free. You should be compensated for your time and energy and efforts. Like, how would you respond to that? Yeah, I don't. Honestly, don't know where they get this mentality from. I think, I think the, just the industry kind of sets that in. Like, you know, people are so set on pricing and like, by the way, I, I wrote a blog post about this and I get, I got tons of hate mail from this. Like about people, doing free work. People wrote, I've yes, read that one. People I love wrote that one. blog posts about me on how you should not listen to me and all this stuff. It was so crazy. Like, what? How can someone? I'm trying to, I don't know. You're telling your experience. You're telling my story. Like, why are you bashing me? Like, it's kind of cool. I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, so like, you know, people are so set on, oh, well, I'm going to charge $150 an hour and that's it. Take it or leave it. Sorry. That's not how things work in the real world. I mean, maybe for some people that are really good and they can do that, but not everyone is that good. Like, I mean, even me, I'm not that good. Like I (laughs) charge. (laughs) We can argue about that later. (laughs) Yeah. No, I am a, I'm a hard worker and a lucky man. That's it. Right place at the right time. Would you say the right place is just knowing the right people? Yeah, has a lot to do with that. Referrals are like insane. referrals are everything. That's why yeah. I say they're worth more than money by far, big time. Um, but people, people are set on. Oh, I'm only going to charge 150 dollars an hour. I think we're taught that growing up. I think the industry. Ch- kind of sets that. Like everyone has a set salary for the year. You get a raise at the end of the year if you're good, right? Whatever. I don't know. I think, I think like, for example, and I can only speak from my experience. Let me make that clear. I charge differently every single project. I rarely, I have a base and just for reference, we'll say I charge $8,000 a week. This is for reference. Google comes to me and be like, Hey, Dan, we need you to do, um, I charge weekly, by the way. That's a whole nother story. Uh, we need you to do this project. How much are you going to charge us? I'm like, all right, cool. AK a week. That's my base. That's my starting point. They might laugh. They might say, whatever. We can't do that. Um, would you come down to 5K? There are a lot of people in this world that would say, no, I would not come down 3K, still make $5,000 on a project for one, one week. Again, these are just rough numbers. Uh-huh. <laughs> uh, um, some people will still say no to that. And I think, you know, if, if, if you really want to work for Google, that's one thing. I think doing the work is cool. I think you learn a lot from any project you're doing. I don't think money should keep you from doing fun, cool work you're passionate about. Now, if you don't want to do the work, yes, do not take a big price uh, cut. This is not what we're talking about here. We're talking about doing work that you want to do, um, which is hopefully all the work that you're doing. That's a strong stance. It's a strong stance, but hey, I'm going to stick with it. Okay. But if not, if you're not going to work for free, be flexible. Yeah, sure. Your your friends come to you. They want you to do a project. You don't have to do it for free. I don't know. Charge them a pizza, something. Be flexible with your pricing. I mean, like I said, I've never done the same project for the same cost. Sometimes I'll charge more. Sometimes I'll charge less. Sometimes I'll do it for free. Yeah, if you want it. Or like with responses we particularly want. Like we'll talk to them and get on their level because we want to work with them. Yeah, and you never know what it's it's going to turn into. Mm -hmm. It's been far better for us than anything else. That was episode 92. It's our second of four parts of kind of our our favorite episodes from 2015. Just kind of a nice way to end out the year so that we can take some time off, go visit family, all that stuff. We hope you enjoyed listening. Uh, If you need more podcasts for your ear holes this winter, this time around, uh, go to spec.fm. We have four other shows on the network. More coming in 2016. Big news. uh, All for designers and developers helping you level up. If you want to chat with us on Twitter, we're at designdetailsfm or in our Slack team at spec.fm slash Slack. Before we go, huge thanks to our two sponsors that made this episode possible. First up, as always, Dropbox. Dropbox is the simplest way to work 
however you want, with whoever you want, wherever you want, on whatever you want. It handles all the syncing, all the file management, all the storage. So you can work on any file with any device from wherever you are with anyone you choose. So you can just build more interesting things. You can check it out and get started at Dropbox.com. Thanks once again to Dropbox. Our second sponsor, of course, is Icon Finder, the largest source of premium icons on the web. They have over 700,000 icons in their library, and you can get access to them all with Icon Finder Pro. It starts at just nine bucks a month, but use the promo code Design Details. That'll tell them that we sent you and get you 50% off your first month. Thank you so much once again to Icon Finder. We'll be back next week again with Sarah. Yep. Producer Sarah, what the hell? That's skill. You just took an entire cracker covered in cheese out of your mouth and set it down on your phone like that was the better option. I have a lot of saliva in my mouth right now.